Do you ever struggle with remembering details from your travels? Then I've got something special for you. How would you like a better way to keep track of all the things you see and experience in Scotland? A way to keep those special memories and all the details fresh for years to come. My new Scotland travel journal might just be what you need. It includes daily journaling prompts to help you start writing about your day, lots of space for doodling and notes, prompts to reflect on your trip overall, and suggestions for things to do that help you make more meaningful connections with Scotland. There's also inspiration for your travel bucket list, a map to draw your route, space to keep track of your travel details, and some Gaelic and Scottish phrases to try while you're here. All you have to do is print out the journal, fold the pages in half and start writing. The Scotland Travel Journal is the perfect companion for your upcoming trip to Scotland. Find it in the Watch Me See online shop or visit the link in the show notes. And now, let's get on with the show. Hello there and welcome to Wild for Scotland, a podcast full of immersive travel stories from Scotland. I'm your host, Cathy Kamleitner. Wild for Scotland helps you connect with Scotland and dream about future adventures, regardless of your travel plans. Each episode starts with a travel story to whisk you away. Then I'll tell you some of my top tips to visit Scotland for yourself. So lean back and enjoy. Let's travel to Scotland. Today we continue our great journey around Scotland with a scenic road trip. This story is for the nature lovers among you. Whether you're a hiker, wildlife watcher, citizen scientist or simply an enthusiast for beautiful landscapes. If you want to immerse yourself in Scottish nature, I think you'll really enjoy this one. We're heading to one of Scotland's national parks, the Cairngorms. The Cairngorms National Park was established in 2003 and covers several mountain ranges and glens in the eastern part of the Highlands. It is home to five of the six tallest mountains in Scotland, and its central plateau lies consistently above 1,000 metres, giving it a feel of the Arctic tundra. As such, it provides a unique habitat for many rare species of plants and animals that you can't really find anywhere else in Britain. And yet, it is also a place where we can see the impact we're having on the planet, in good ways and in bad ways. Our story leads us right through this unique landscape, along the Snow Road's scenic route. We'll drive down winding mountain roads and go for a walk in the heart of the National Park to get up close and personal with nature and learn about some of the ways we can protect it. So prepare for an adventure that might change the way you look at things. This is The Birds and the Trees. Sometimes the view from the road is so beautiful, you have to stop. 
Of course, that's not always that easy. For example, when there's traffic behind you, you're on the winding mountain road, and there's no car park or lay-by in sight. But sometimes the stars align, and somehow magically, a lay-by appears in just the right place. Or maybe someone in the roads department had an inkling that this is a spot where everyone will want to stop. As I get out of the car, the fresh mountain air hits my face and fills my lungs. It's only September and still warm at the bottom of the glens, but up here in the mountains, the seasons move at a different pace. The air is crisp and you can almost smell the snow, not due for another few weeks, but already lingering close, waiting for its turn. To my left, the road descends dramatically towards Cockbridge. Just a few moments ago, I drove past a sign that warned me of slopes up to 20% steep. Now, one by one, I see the cars that were behind me disappear over the edge of the road, as if they were falling off a cliff, engulfed by the earth. Walking across the car park, I reach The Watchers, one of the art installations along this road. The Watchers are four tall sculptures, made from folded sheets of steel, a rusty red-brown colour, geometric shapes like origami figures. To some, they look like armoured soldier, or a nod to the copper stills of the nearby distilleries. To me, they look like standing stones, overlooking the glen from this vantage point. Next to them stands another sculpture. This one is clearly a standing stone, made from rock and inscribed with a poem. It guides your view towards a white speck in the landscape, a 16th century castle about a mile below in the glen. All around it, I can see the hills of the Cairngorms National Park. No tall Monroes yet, but vast landscapes of rolling hills, bare slopes seemingly empty, which of course they are not. The landscape looks like a rag rock made from scraps of brown, green, grey, purple and black fabric. The fresh green of the summer is starting to fade. Patches of brown and purple reveal the heather growing on these hills. Not undisturbed, though. The ground is littered with signs of Muirburn, a common land management technique used by the Highland Estates in this area. The heather is burnt to encourage more growth and higher numbers of grouse. Burnt patches, like scars in the landscape, the purpose disputed by two heated sides. A practice so full of tradition, but also all sorts of environmental consequences. A sobering reminder that this landscape may be part of a national park, but the land is still privately owned. All three estates I can see from here are known for highland sporting, including the controversial practice of driven grouse shooting. But let's not get into that. Instead, let's bring our focus back to the road. I'm on the snow roads, a scenic linear drive through the heart of the Cairngorms. For 90 miles, it leads from Granton-on-Spey in the north of the National Park to Blair Gowrie, south of the park. It follows the dramatic Lecht Road, 
that winds its way through the hills and glens like a roller coaster. It's particularly beautiful around the Lecht ski centre, where it effortlessly switches sides in the glen, finding the path of least resistance, first on one side of the river, then the other. There's no space for Levi's here. From Ballater to Bremar, the road runs through the Royal Deeside. Queen Victoria fell in love with the area and bought an estate along with a castle. This royal allure brought many others to the River Dee. They wanted to holiday in the same region as the Queen. The upper class, wealthy landowners, aristocrats, hence the name, Royal Deeside. Still today, the royal family comes here every summer. The road now skirts the edge of Inverkalt Estates, one of the many estates here in the National Park. Somewhere to the left runs the River Dee, but for a while I can't see it. The road is framed by tall Caledonian Scots pines, a native species that once covered vast swathes of the highlands. Here they are planted close together, almost in uniform rows, leaving very little space for light to reach the forest floor, a scene that is hauntingly beautiful to me. This trip is, after all, inspired by a book about the natural conservation efforts in a part of the National Park. It tells the stories of long-lost landscapes and almost-lost species, and the work of ecologists and conservationists who do what they can to bring them back or preserve what is left of them. Birds and trees, insects and mosses, mammals and fish, they are all affected by the way we use these lands, impact them, exploit them. As untame as it seems, there are very few truly wild places left in Scotland. Ironically, true wilderness rarely exists today without some element of intervention returning a land to its wild state from before, before industrialization, before romanticism, before us. I'm on the way to one of these places, not wild still, but wild again. I reach Braemar, a picturesque highland village famed for its annual highland gathering, a beautiful castle and the lush Five Arms Hotel. Instead of following the snow roads, though, up towards the Cairnwell Pass, at 2,200 feet, one of Scotland's highest mountain roads, I turn right, drive through the village and keep following the River Dee. The road becomes smaller and smaller as I follow the river upstream. I drive past the Victoria Bridge with its white cast iron archway commemorating the monarch. At the top of the glen, the road suddenly makes a 90-degree angle and crosses the river on a low stone bridge. It then swings about, going back the way I came, on the other side of the Dee. On the left, there is a car park, busy from what I can see. From here, the Lynn of Dee is just a short walk away. Lynn usually means waterfall, but in this case, the Lynn is actually more of a gorge. The water does overcome some difference in height, but the real spectacle is to watch the water shoot through a narrow gap among the rocks, forcing it to take on great speed. 
Over millennia and more, the river has carved deep trenches in the rocks, digging deeper and deeper. I continue my drive down a narrow, single-track road. Tall Scots pines are lining the road, their discarded needles gather on the edge of the pavement. Every now and then, a really large pine towers above all the others, its top branches blazing red and gnarly, forming a clear contrast to the dark green needles and blue skies. To my right, small tracks lead away into the forest and towards Mar Lodge, a dream in pink, built by the first Duke of Five and his wife Princess Louise, the granddaughter of Queen Victoria. One hundred years later, the lodge, along with the estate, was bought by the National Trust for Scotland, who rent out the lodge as a wedding venue. But that's just a means to an end. The real work of the Trust is expanding across the estate, and that's what I'm keen to see. At last I reach the end of the road. I park up, put on my hiking boots, and hit the trail. The path I'm now walking on was recommended to me by Andrew Painting, an assistant ecologist here at Marlodge Estate, and also the author of the book that inspired my trip. As an ecologist, Andrew studies the relationship between plants, animals and the environment, and how human activity impacts that relationship. In the Scottish Highlands, this impact can be seen everywhere. We've lost about 99% of the original Caledonian pine woods that once covered Scotland. The remaining 1% is fragmented and isolated, unable to support the wildlife that depended on it. Land management practices are threatening ecosystems. Peatlands, which are incredible carbon stores, are destroyed, releasing all that carbon into our atmosphere. Many species, like lynx or wolves, have disappeared from Britain, and many others are about to follow their footsteps. Birds of prey, although protected by law, are still persecuted, but also less charismatic species, only known by real experts, are on their way out. Numbers of breeding birds are falling. There are barely any wild salmon left, and alpine plants are having to move to higher and higher grounds, until one day there won't be any mountain left for them. The picture is indeed quite grim. But not all is lost, and that's what I'm here to see. At Marlodge Estate, the National Trust for Scotland is regenerating some of the ecosystems that had been lost. And with that, precious species are returning to these lands. And I can see this right at the start of my walk, as I enter Glencoich. For centuries, this glen was practically empty, cleared of all trees to make way for more deer. Now Scots pines and birches are crowding the valley, creating habitats for endless numbers of forest animals. I take a detour to the Linn of Coich. Like the Linn of Dee, a narrow gorge forcing the river to tumble over itself and drop over a series of small waterfalls. I walk to the middle of a small wooden footbridge right above the narrowest part of the gorge, and watch the river endlessly shoot down, a bottomless supply of crystal-clear water. 
Larch trees grow left and right of the gorge, still in their green coats. Bright red berries and rowan trees poke through the leaves. Some of the birch trees are already turning colours. A little further upstream, I spot a hole in the rocks, carved by the brutal torrent of the river at high water, big enough to fit four, maybe five people in, if you're brave. I look through it and see the river rush by, gargling and glugging. All around the glen, I see the results of the Trust's efforts. The heart of the native woodland regeneration area. Painstakingly, hundreds of tree seedlings are planted at suitable sites and monitored on a regular basis. Not all of them survive the grazing deer herds, but the trick lies in the numbers. More and more tree seedlings, fewer and fewer deer. Eventually, the scale flips and the pine woods are returning. The trees here vary in size. Some stand tall on their own, while others cluster together, forming little groves. They never seem close enough, though, to throw too much shade on the ground. Below them lies the chaotic undergrowth, heather and blaeberries, tiny birches and rowan trees, and countless species of sphagnum moss, green and yellow and red. I sit down under one of the tallest pines I can see and eat my lunch, listening to the soft sway of the branches in the wind, the mumbling sound of the river coich, always faintly in the distance. I can hear birds calling and insects buzzing, a taste of what wilderness in Scotland is supposed to be. As I climb higher, the landscape changes. The heather grows higher and is interspersed by tall grasses. In among them, white-green lichen spans like spider webs. On this slope, there are fewer pine trees, although I can see many young trees fighting their way up. In 20 more years, there might be a pine wood here too. From Glencoich, the path heads up towards the Clashfierne Pass a narrow, treeless cleft among the hills. I cross through this valley, past a long, narrow loch, framed by wildflowers. I'm drawn to those that are purple and pink, like heather, scabious, harebell and rosebay willow herb. I watch a big bumblebee, enjoying life, and I'm certain I'd see even more wildlife if I just sat still long enough. The slopes left and right look like perfect imitations of what the Cairngorm Mountains look like in my head. Covered in heather with patches of scree. Or covered in scree with patches of heather. Brown and grey and majestic. Eventually the path starts descending again and drops down to Glenlui, which was cleared of pine woods in the 18th century and is now also a site of the regeneration project. In the distance, I can see many of the famous Cairngorm peaks. Ben Macdui, the second highest mountain in Scotland, is among them. As I reach the track at the bottom of the glen, though, 
I turn away from them and start making my way back. The final leg of my walk leads me along the banks of the River Dee and past the impressive Mar Lodge itself. Tired but inspired, I return to my car and drive back across the Lynn of Dee, past the Victoria Bridge and on to Bremar. On the way, I stop at another well-placed lay-by and look across the glen to the coich wetlands where I was just a few moments ago. I can see the Scots pines on the other side, taking hold on the riverside and up the slopes of hills. There are tall trees and small trees, expanding on all sides. I would like to end this story with a quote from Andrew's book that resonates with what I felt in that moment overlooking the River Dee. Hope returns as I travel across the highlands, from Ascent to the borders and from Aberdeen to the Western Isles. Native woodlands are returning to Scotland. In Speyside, a great woodland area is growing, from Abernethy in the east to Glenfeshy in the west. The western pine woods of Glen Nevis, Noydard, Loch Arcaig, Ben Shieldig, and Ben A are in the hands of conservation bodies working to restore them. In Deeside, the forests are expanding, while Invercald, as traditional a sporting estate as you could hope to find, is reforesting hundreds of hectares of land. It's not just in the woods that life is returning. Bogs are being restored. Meanwhile, beavers have returned to Scottish lochs and burns after a 400-year absence. Cranes are breeding again in Aberdeenshire. White-tailed eagles, red kites and goshawks have returned. Red squirrels are expanding their range north and west. Pine martens are spreading south. Corn creek numbers have stabilised after a century of decline. With every environmental project comes more information on what works well and what doesn't. For 25 years, the Trust has been fighting exhausting rearguard actions at Mara Lodge, as have conservationists across Scotland. Now, we're all seeing the results of their hard labour. The birds and the trees are coming home. I hope you enjoyed this story from the Cairngorms National Park and the Snow Road Scenic Group. If you'd like to see pictures of the viewpoints and some of the natural sites I mentioned in this story, head to our website wildforscotland.com and find the full show notes for this episode. As always, I do have some tips for you to plan your own trip to this area. But first, let's take a quick detour and hear a story about our sponsors. Now it's time for the practical part of the show. Here are my top five travel tips for a road trip on the snow roads and a visit to the Cairngorms National Park. Tip number one, read Andrew's book. There are some amazing books out there inspired by the Cairngorm Mountains, its natural landscape and wildlife. Andrew Painting's book is one of them and I highly recommend you read it. It's called Regeneration, the Rescue of a Wild Land 
I took away so much from the book, and it has really changed the way I experience Scottish landscapes when I travel. I'll link to the book in the show notes, but we'll also share some more mountain-inspired books to read, music to listen to, and films to watch in this week's newsletter, which comes out on Thursday. You'll find the sign-up link in the show notes too. Tip number two. If you only have a few days, choose an area to focus on. The Cairngorms National Park is absolutely massive, and as such, it can be quite difficult to see all of its areas in one trip. Driving down the Snow Roads route, you get a sense for the northern part of the park, as well as the Royal Deeside and the area around Bremar and Glenshee. Over on the other side of the Cairngorm Massive lies Aviemore and Rothimarkus Forests. Further southeast, you can go off the beaten path in the Angus Glens. Each area has a lot to offer, so make sure you choose one or two and explore those more in depth. I like staying in the Royal Deeside because you get to see a vast variety of landscapes. Tip number three. Hike, hike, hike. To me, the Cairngorms National Park has to be experienced away from the roads. It doesn't have to be a long or technical hike. In fact, sticking to a low-lying route is always safer if you're new to these mountains. I hike the Clash Fierney circuit, which is about 10 miles long and very varied. If hiking by yourself is intimidating, hire a local guide or book an outdoorsy experience. You'll find anything from hiring mountain bikes to going pony trekking. Tip number four, take your rest days. If you need a rest day from all your walking and exploring, the Royal Deeside has a lot of other things to offer. For example, you could hit the Scottish Castle Trail and visit one of my favourite castles, Craigievar, or head over to Crathis Castle, where you can climb among treetops at Go Ape. Tip number five. Don't stop at this national park. If you're keen to learn more about Scottish wildlife, plants and ecosystems, or just find beautiful scenery to go for a hike, there's a whole network of nature reserves waiting for you. Of course, there's also the Loch Lomond and the Trossachs National Park, as well as two UNESCO biospheres in Westeros and in Galloway. One of my ready-made itineraries will focus on such areas where you can immerse yourself in nature. They'll be out soon. And with this, I send you off to dream about your own trip to Scotland's national parks. We only have one more road trip story to go in this season, so make sure you tune in next week to find out where we're heading next. Thank you so much for listening to Wild for Scotland. We are an independently produced podcast, so if you want to support our work, you can do so either by sharing your favourite episode with three friends or by signing up for our Patreon from £3 per month. You'll find the link in the show notes. Wild for Scotland is written and hosted by me, Cathy Kamleitner. Fran Jarowskis is the producer and editor of the show. Podcast art is by Lizzie Vaughan Knight, the Tartan Trailburner, and all original music is composed by Bruce Wallace. Until next time, when we travel down a different road in Scotland. If you're still here, listening all the way to the very end, it means you've probably got your hands full. So let me take this opportunity to remind you that I don't just write immersive travel stories. I also plan unforgettable itineraries for Scotland. And it's never been easier to follow one of my routes. Head to watchmesee.com forward slash shop to browse my ready-made Scotland itineraries and turn your travel dreams into reality.